Well, good evening. My name is Daniel. I am one of the assistant pastors here at Deer Creek Church, and it's just wonderful to see so many of you come out on a Friday night um, when the Avengers are on and <laughs> to come out here and just celebrate something that is, is such better news. It, it's the message of the cross. If you have your Bible with you the, uh, tonight, open up to John chapter 13. It's going to be in John chapter 13 is our reading. Uh, but before we dive into that passage, let's pray together. Ask that God would teach us and guide us in this time. Father in heaven, uh, as we reflect on the cross and the lengths to which you were willing to send your son to demonstrate your love for us, Lord, we, we are overwhelmed. Our hearts are heavy on a night like tonight. And we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to, to see the truths of who Jesus is and, and the comforting words he has for us in this passage. And, and would you, Holy Spirit, teach us? We pray all these things in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen. So we're going to be in John chapter 13, and we're going to begin in verse 30. And let me just set the context here just briefly. Jesus is having a last supper with his disciples, with his followers, and we're told that Judas, one of his followers, is about to betray him. And Jesus has kind of these last words for his disciples before he knows he's about to be betrayed and crucified. So beginning in John chapter 13, verse 30, is the word of God. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. You know, I was thinking and just reflecting this week, and I was thinking uh, about how, 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 what, I, what I should ask on a night like tonight. And I was thinking, what, what's the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing in your life? I know for me growing up, uh, if you were to ask me that question when I was 11 years old, I would have said, well, duh, sports. Sports are the most important things in my life. I love sports. I played baseball growing up. Uh, I golfed. I played hockey. I was, I was even a bowler. And, and I tried out for basketball one time. It, that, that wasn't a good experience. But I love sports. And, I, and it wasn't just playing sports, too. I loved watching sports. My brothers and I, we would wake up on Saturday mornings, and, and it wasn't cartoons for us. It was SportsCenter. And we would watch SportsCenter from 8 a.m., to, to noon, four straight hours of Sports Center, and then we would watch college football for the rest of the day, and then we'd watch the highlights of that game, and then we'd wake up the next morning and we'd watch the Broncos. So we loved sports. It was the most important thing in my life. And, and I still love sports today. Uh, I love running. I love working out. My son Eli, I'm trying to pass on sports to him, he just turned four about two weeks ago, and what we celebrated by going to the Rockies game. 
I love, so, I love sports so much. I was up at 4.45 a.m. to uh, yesterday morning, and I'm sitting there in my underwear. I know this is a holy day. I, I shouldn't mention this. I'm in my underwear, and I'm brewing coffee, and I'm looking at the avalanche game from the night before, and I take off my glasses so I can't see the score because I didn't stay up for it because I want to watch the, the highlights afresh. And I'm watching, and the avalanche are down two to nothing, and they score three straight goals to win and go up 3-1 in the series. And I'm sitting there in my underwear, jumping up and down in my kitchen. <laughs> I love sports. <laughs> but maybe you've noticed this. Sports have kind of changed, haven't they? Sports have kind of changed. I remember sports used to be fun. Sports are really serious now. In fact, so much so, I was taking a walk in a park recently, and I saw these signs that were up on baseball fields, so they, they piqued my curiosity. I went up, and I looked at these signs, and they had a message to parents from your kid, and it said this, parents, I am a kid. This is just a game. My coach is a volunteer. <laughs> the officials are human. This is the one that made me chuckle. No college scholarships will be handed out today. <laughs> I think I know where this started, too. You guys remember Bobby Knight? Bobby Knight, he was this, this college basketball coach. He used to get so agitated with the officials, he would pick up chairs and throw them onto the court at the officials. So it makes me think, right? We, we've kind of lost it perspective on what's important, haven't we? Jesus in this passage is his last night with his followers. He's just told them he's about to be betrayed. He knows he's about to be crucified. He's going to the cross and he offers his disciples the one thing that they need in a moment like this. He offers them perspective, perspective on what is the most important thing. He says, this is what you need to know about the cross. This is the perspective you need. Uh, there was a Roman philosopher, his name was Cicero. He lived about 30 years before Jesus lived. He had a quote about the cross. See, the cross was a, a method of Roman execution. And he said, the very mention of the cross should be far removed, not only from the Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, and his ears as well. In other words, the cross is so gruesome, so vile, so ugly, so shameful, that it shouldn't even enter polite conversation. It shouldn't even enter a person's mind. And, and Jesus is saying that that is true. What he is about to endure is the most gruesome thing ever conceived of by humankind. But Jesus says, I'm offering you a new perspective. Cicero's perspective is true, but that's the perspective of man. I'm about to offer you the perspective of God about the cross. Because the perspective of man is limited. And, and we all need this perspective, right? That's true of all of our sufferings. When we're facing suffering, when we're facing trial, we need Jesus' perspective. Maybe for you, maybe, maybe for you tonight, you have a son or a daughter who, who just refuses to talk to you. And it's painful. Or maybe, maybe you've heard recently that you have a cancer diagnosis. Maybe you're thinking you're never going to see a loved one again. Maybe some of you are facing a custody battle. See, Jesus is speaking to his disciples here, but he's telling all of us, this is the perspective you need on life, this perspective of the cross, what I'm about to endure. Judas has gone out, but now you need to hear this message, the perspective of the cross that only Jesus can offer, the perspective only God can offer. 
So Jesus gives us two, two things about the cross that he wants us to know and he wanted his disciples to know. The first thing he wanted them to know is the glory of the cross. That's the first thing he wanted to impress in their mind was the glory of the cross. Beginning in verse 30, we're told Judas has, has gone out. He's about to go and portray Jesus. Then beginning in verse 31, Jesus speaks about his upcoming crucifixion. And notice how he mentions it. He speaks in kind of weird language here. Beginning in verse 31, he says this. When he had gone out, that's Judas, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So, so what does Jesus mean here? Well, first, what does Jesus mean about this mention of the son of man? What is Jesus talking about the son of man? Well, that phrase was actually Jesus's most used reference to himself. Jesus sometimes referred to himself as the Messiah or the son of God. People referred to him as teacher or rabbi. He was known as a prophet by some and a king by others. But Jesus's favorite way to describe himself was as the son of man. And almost everybody, every commentator has agreed that when Jesus is using that term, he's referring back to a prophecy that happened 600 years, even before Jesus was born. And he's saying, I am that guy. And the prophecy comes from the book of Daniel. Daniel in this prophecy, we're told that he sees this vision of God about somebody who's to come. And he puts it this way. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So you see what he's saying? He's saying in heaven, this heavenly creature is also one that looks like an earthly creature. A heavenly and earthly being is coming. And we're told he came to the ancient of days. That's God. God who existed before all time is the ancient one. So this son of man came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. See, what Jesus is saying is, I am this coming son of man. The one that Daniel talked about 600 years before, that is me. I am the eternal king that God has selected. I'm the one who is to reign over every human that has ever lived. I am the son of man. And notice what Jesus says in John chapter 13. He says, now is the son of man glorified. Jesus is saying, now is the son of man glorified. When Judas has gone out, when it's a, a, an hour of darkness, when he's about to be crucified, he's saying God is going to receive the glory that he actually deserves. And, and that's kind of a Bible word. So, you know, we don't talk about glorifying things anymore. We don't talk about glory very often anymore. So let me explain what that means. In, in the Bible, when it uses the word glory, the word literally means weight, weight. So, you know, when you receive bad news, you, you say, whoa, that, that was really weighty news. Or, or when you're talking about something that's really important, you say that that is something that's weighty or deep or significant. 
So literally the word glory, when it's speaking of God's glory in the Bible, it's speaking of God's weightiness, his importance, his significance, the thing that, that really when we witness it, we feel it. And, and the Bible says that we see God's glory in a number of places. The, the place we see it best though, in the Old Testament, is in Psalm chapter 19. It's described this way. David is writing this Psalm and he says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. See, what what David was saying is when we leave here tonight and you look up at the night sky and you see the galaxies, you see the stars, you see the heavens, that is screaming the glory of God. When you see its vastness and the power that had to create that, you are experiencing the glory of God. You can put it this way. I, I did some research on this. If you were to take just a dime and you were to hold it at arm's length into the night sky, the space that's covered by that dime is five million galaxies. That feeling you have of how small you are and how vast and powerful the creator of that must be, if you are thinking about that, you are feeling and you're sensing and you're experiencing the glory of God. So so back to Jesus. Jesus is saying, now... In this moment of darkness, don't look to the sky to see the glory of God. Now, when you think about the glory of God, what I want you to reflect on, disciples, and all of us here this this evening, is I want you to reflect on the cross. Jesus is saying that the glory of God can be best seen not when you look up at the galaxies, not when you witness a mountain, Not when you stand beside the Pacific Ocean. He's saying, when you want to see the glory of God, you look to the cross of Jesus. And and this makes me, this makes me think of a story. When I was about 11 years old, I already told you I love sports. I was 11 years old. I'm riding in the car with my dad. And this, this message comes in on the radio talking about how Patrick Waugh, the goaltender of the Colorado Avalanche, the most decorated goalie in all of NHL history, was going to actually arrive at a a secret location that they were going to disclose. And people could go there, they could get memorabilia signed, they could go there and they could take pictures with Patrick Waugh and they could shake his hand. And I'm just chomping at the bit. I'm like, dad, we got to go see Patrick Waugh. It's going to be awesome. It's my lifetime hero. We got to go see him. And finally, they're like, okay, we're going to tell you the secret location. The best goalie of all time is going to be where? At a Conoco gas station on Santa Fe Boulevard. And, and I sat there thinking, like, is this the same Patrick Waugh? Is he going to be at a Conoco? And, and here's what I want you to see. Jesus in this passage is saying, is saying that same thing. He's saying that same thing too. Jesus, who is the son of man, the universal and eternal king, did not come to take a throne. He didn't come to take a crown. He did not come to reign in power. Instead, Jesus came to do what nobody expected. He came to take a cross, to wear a crown of thorns, and to submit himself in weakness to death, even death on a cross. And Jesus says when he did that, that is the ultimate display of God's glory, of his praiseworthiness. And that sounds strange to us, right? It sounds strange to us. In fact, It makes me think of, there's this man named John Dixon. John Dixon is a pastor and he goes around college campuses and kind of gives lectures on Christianity and the claims of Jesus. 
And he remembers this one time, he went to a campus in Australia and he was speaking on the topic, the wounds of Jesus. The fact that God would come and bear punishment and actually take on wounds for people. And he said this, after I had finished my lecture, during the question time, a Muslim man arose to proclaim, how preposterous was it that the creator of the universe should be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he would have to eat, sleep, and even go to the bathroom, let alone die on a cross. And Dixon, after he had received this question, he, he, he was quick to say, you know, this man came and his m- remarks were very intelligent. They were, they were cogent, they were civil. And the man went on to argue, he said that it was, not only, uh, it was not only shameful, but illogical that God, the creator, could have pain inflicted on him by any lesser beings. And Dixon felt like he, he didn't have any knockdown argument and he didn't have any response. He had no comeback. So finally, after the man spoke, he sat there and he pondered it for a minute. And finally, he just replied, thank you. Thank you so much for making the uniqueness of Jesus so clear for everybody. Yes, you're right. The king of the universe, God, Jesus, the son of man, has wounds. He was willing to bear shame, to bear scorn, and to bear a cross. And nothing makes that more, more glorifying to God than 2,000 years ago when Jesus actually did it. And, and here's the thing, right? Dick Dixon realizes what, what we sometimes often miss. Right alongside the most shameful thing that we can think of, Jesus was actually displaying the glory of God. Right alongside the darkest hour of humanity, Jesus' light and beauty was being displayed. Right alongside the hate, sin, and scorn of humankind, Jesus' forgiveness, love, and grace was being poured out on people who didn't deserve it. And, and so maybe many of you are still thinking, okay, I get that. that. That makes sense that Jesus died for sins, but how does that glorify God? Well, Jesus in verse 33 tells his disciples some comforting words. Notice what he says. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. See, what Jesus was saying was the cross was, was not his end stop. Jesus said he is departing. He will be with his disciples only a little while longer. That's because Jesus knew ultimately where he was going was to the Father. See, Jesus not only died on a cross, he was not only buried in a tomb, but we're told that three days after he was laid in a tomb, he rose again from the dead. And then after 50 days with his disciples, after being raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And now we're told he is personally experiencing the relationship and love and glory that we were all meant to experience. He's actually gazing upon God the Father and experiencing the glory that we were all made for. And Jesus tells Peter in verse 36, he says, where I'm going, you cannot go now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus says, Peter, you cannot follow me now. If you were to stand right now, Peter, before God the Father, you could not. 
See, he could not stand before God the Father because right now Peter was in sin. Peter, if he were to stand before the Father, would cower in fear and experience the punishment and wrath of God. And and let me be straightforward here. Deer Creek, as we stand right now, if we are not in Christ according to Jesus, if none of us have faith in Jesus, then we cannot enter the presence of the Father. In fact, Jesus put it this way. He said this earlier in John's gospel. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Those are the words of Jesus. And he says them for a specific reason. He says them so that we will see the glory of the cross. See, because right now, Peter is saying, or Jesus is saying to Peter, you cannot come now as you are in sin, but after the cross, you too, Peter, you too will one day be able to stand before God the Father just as Jesus is now personally experiencing the love and the affection and a relationship with the creator of the universe. So too, he says, anybody who puts their faith in him will experience that love and that glory and that relationship that we were all created for. I was recently listening to an interview of a guy who had recently become a Christian and he was telling his interviewer, he said when he was contemplating the cross, he said that he thought this was the shock at the heart of the Bible, that Jesus Christ, the one who is the son of God, who could walk on water and raise the dead, would willingly die for me. He said, I mean, that is outrageous. There is nothing in the world that comes close to that. I think Tim Keller puts it perfectly. Tim Keller says this, he says, the cross shows us that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted by God in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. See, no other message, not the Avengers, not your favorite movie, not any children's program tells us that message. See, only the cross tells us that message. At the cross, we see we are utterly sinful and deserve the punishment of God, but we also see that God so loved sinners, he was willing to send the king of the universe to die for them. So that's the first thing Jesus says about the cross. He says, this is the perspective you need. You need the glory of the cross to understand your life, but Jesus says there's even more. He says this, he says, you not only need to know about the glory of the cross, but you also need to know the glory of a cross-shaped life. And he shows us that beginning in verse 34. And he kind of changes the subject. It seems like he's changing the subject and he tells his disciples this. He gives them a commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, what Jesus is saying here is that the cross is not just something to believe in so that we could have forgiveness with God and a relationship with God, but he also says that the cross is something to live by. The cross is not something to just believe in, but it's something to live by. That's why Jesus, in verse 34, he says, it's a new commandment I give you. It's a new commandment, not in the sense that God is telling us to love one another. God had always said that, In fact, in Leviticus chapter 19, he says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. We've all heard that, right? 
But Jesus says, here's what's new about this. In verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Meaning just as Jesus bore the cross and sacrificed himself for us, we too are to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. Jesus is saying there was an old standard. The old standard was that you love neighbors as you would love yourself. Jesus is saying now you are to love others as I have loved you. You are to make the cross sacrificial, self-giving, self, uh, or other, uh, other-centered love the measure of your love. Henry Nowen, who's a devotional writer, when he was describing this, he said that this is Jesus's path. It's the path of the cross. And the term I can best describe it as is downward mobility. Downward mobility. That's a cross-shaped life, a life of downward mobility. But let's ask ourselves, why? Why, Jesus? Why, why would you give us this commandment? Do you really say that we're to love people to the degree that it leads to our own discomfort, our own inconvenience, our own harm, our own shame, our own rejection? Jesus says, yes. Just as I have loved you, so you too are to love one another. But, but that seems counterintuitive, right? It seems upside down. After all, in order to love others, don't we need to first love ourselves? Jesus says, no, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another with a self-sacrificial, self-giving, other-centered love. A love that puts others first. And Jesus says the reason that this is so important, that the thing that is so crucial about this entire commandment is in verse 35. He tells us, it is because by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, by self-sacrificial love, the world around us, people around us will know that we're followers of Jesus. Just as Jesus's sacrifice on the cross showed the glory of God, our sacrificial love of others shows that we are followers of Jesus. And I'm going to be honest, I read this at at least 30 to 40 times, right? And and I read it every which way possible I could. And I kept trying it to read this, right? I kept trying to read it. And I thought it said this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you memorize a systematic theology textbook. And and then I, and I was like, well, no, it didn't say that. So I took off my glasses and I tried to read it again. And I thought it said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you memorize all the philosophical proofs for the existence of God. I tried it, but every single time it says this, it says, no matter what, the measure of how we are following Jesus is not measured by what we know or the truth that we believe, but by how much we love other people. Jesus is saying that content alone, knowledge alone, None of this is enough. What we need as true disciples of Jesus is a knowledge that overflows into a true love for others. There's no other way. We either know Jesus and love others or we do not know Jesus. I I had a uh, seminary professor who was uh, an Orthodox Jew, but she was my New Testament professor, so she knew a lot about Jesus. 
And she was a person who knew an extreme amount about the first century. So she knew more about Jesus in the first century than any person that I had ever met. I mean, she would read Greek and then she would give these lectures that honestly people would hear these lectures. And one time, I'm not kidding you, 80% of the, con- uh, of the people, the students that were there stood up and they started applauding her and whistling her and there were cheers. And the thing is, even though she read every single day and knew right content, She never truly knew Jesus or the power of the cross of Jesus. And the point is this, it is possible to have right knowledge of who Jesus is, to know true things, true content, but that one that does not lead to a cross-shaped life, Jesus saying, that is not a life that truly reflects a follower of me. Jesus says, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you display the glory of a cross-shaped life, a life of downward mobility. And so we have to ask this question, right? What, What is the direction of your life? What is the direction of your life? Jesus says, when you are hurt, when you are broken, when you are weak, when you are suffering, when you are sick, when you are powerless, all for the sake of the benefit of others, it is right then that we are showing the world we are his followers and we are his disciples. So what does that mean for you? You know, for many of us, that means that, that we're gonna have to do the painful work of forgiving other people. We're gonna have to do the painful work of actually forgiving other people because we, we, we can often say, right, I forgive you, but I, I don't know if I'm ready to trust you yet. And, and let me just say that is legitimate That is legitimate, but oftentimes, I know if you're anything like me, I usually say that because what I'm really saying is, I forgive you, but I still want you to know that I'm a little bit angry at you. For others, it means we need to do the humbling work of helping somebody who is completely ungrateful to us. For others of us, it means we need to do the weak work of carrying on in our menial jobs, the jobs that we oftentimes think we don't don't deserve this. For many of us, it's gonna mean we're, we're gonna actually have to tell people with our words about the gospel that Jesus died for sinners and that faith needs to be placed in him. I know for me, it, it's gonna look like the work of loving people who don't look like me, act like me, think like me, come from the same economic class as me or dress like me. See, Jesus says a love like that is only possible through the cross. A belief in the cross for forgiveness and a relationship with God, but also a life lived by the cross, which shows the glory of God to the world around us. And I think a great story that represents this comes from a man, his name is Americo. Americo was a native of Ecuador. And Americo said, I had a horrible way of living. I was violent, always very violent and looking to pick a fight. And one day Americo said that a friend had warned him that the guerrillas in his country of Ecuador wanted him dead. But when the guerrillas found out about the friend's warning, they actually killed his friend first. Americo said, I knew that I was next. So me, my wife, and our five children fled from El Salvador to Los Angeles. And one day, once they had moved to Los Angeles, Juan's oldest son newly became a Christian. And in his Uh, In his newfound zeal, he told his father and his father became a Christian as well. And one day Juan noticed some street gangsters picking on a street preacher. 
So he fought the three of, him, three of them and was proud to tell his father. <coughs> Forgive me, sorry. Three days later, the gangsters took the life of Americo's son. Americo said, I remember seeing my son's body laying on the street. And at that moment, I wanted to be the man I used to be. To complicate matters, a friend of Americo later spotted, holded up in an apartment, the gangsters who had killed his son. He offered Americo a gun and the two of them headed to the apartment in a flash. But then Americo recalls as they were driving to the gangster's apartment, God seemed to tap me on the shoulder and say to me, vengeance is mine. You do not have to do what you're going to do. You have to treat them with love. Almost immediately, Americo threw down his gun and told his friend, I don't want to do this. And despite his anguish and his decision to follow Jesus, the friend called Americo a coward and dropped him off at the gangster's hideout. When Americo reached the apartment, he walked inside. The gangsters saw him and reached for their weapons. The grieving father put up his hands, hit his knees and explained, I am not here to seek revenge. I come humbled to speak to you about Jesus Christ. He said, as those words were coming out, his mouth shook because he felt a strong battle inside. The only thought he could gather was the love of God that he had powerfully revealed to him. And then miraculously, after he shared the message of Jesus with these men, all of them, all three of them, asked Jesus also to be their savior. Americo said, it was right then and there that I started to experience the ministry of love that the Lord has given me. See, that is a cross-shaped life. And we may never be put in the position where we have to put that type of love into practice, but it is daily forgiving of other people, daily doing menial jobs, daily seeking out people who are hurting and broken and displaying the love that Jesus has for them. That is not only America's ministry of love, that's ours. And it was given to us 2,000 years ago when Jesus went to the cross. And it's with that in mind that we come to this table. Jesus says that his glory is not only in heaven now where he's seated, he says his glory actually can be witnessed in something that we wouldn't expect to find it or at a place we wouldn't expect to find it and that's at this table. See, Jesus said to the world, this looks like bread. But for us, for those who are followers of Jesus, he says, this is my body which is given for you. And Jesus said, this isn't just wine. This isn't just something that we drink for our body's sake. He said, this is my blood shed and poured out for the forgiveness of all your sins. Jesus said on the night he was betrayed that he took this bread and he took this cup and he, and he told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. And what that means is if you're a follower of Jesus, if you have placed your faith in Jesus and, and you are following his way of the cross, then this meal is for you. Come and eat. In fact, Jesus says that this bread is not physical nourishment for our bodies, but it is spiritual nourishment that will help us live out a cross-shaped life. If that's not you tonight, then my encouragement would be to you, you, you don't have to pretend to be somebody that you're not. There's nothing magic about this meal. So as it's coming across, if you're not a follower of Jesus, go ahead and just, and just pass it to the other person that's sitting next to you. You will not be judged here. We are a community of people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. Nobody here has it together. But Jesus did say, this, this meal is for my followers. This meal is for their spiritual nourishment to remind them of the cross. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this meal and thank you for your word. God, we thank you mostly for the cross of Jesus, that you so love us that you sent your son to die for us. And we pray as we reflect and, and we eat this meal that you would feed our spirits, that you would encourage us, and that you would give us the power we need to live cross-shaped lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.